Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. We are wrapping up May, which is celebrating movies that came out in May with one of the biggest movies of all time, one of the biggest sequels of all time, one of the biggest sci-fi movies of all time, and in my opinion, the best Star Wars movie of all time. The Empire Strikes Back, the follow-up to 1977 smash hit Star Wars. We're going to be going into the background of the movie, some interesting stories about how it was made, why it was made the way that it was, and I have two very special guests joining me later on in the show. You may know them from their YouTube channel, Star Wars Explained. I also know them as two very fierce Schmodown competitors. Alex Damon and Molly Damon will be joining me later in the show to talk about the movie. But before we get to that, if you're watching us on YouTube, a great way to help the show grow is to also become an audio subscriber. You can find that information down in the description below. And if you're listening to us and you want to see the video version, you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Movies. And while you're over on YouTube, you can also check out the Schmodown Entertainment Network. Not only do they have the best movie trivia contest around the movie trivia Schmodown, we are in full swing this season, but they also have SEN Live every weekday. You can also find shows like the Inner Geekdom Show, which is running down all of the, the cornucopia of stuff that's on TV and in the movies right now. Lots of great stuff to check out over on SEN, so I'd appreciate it if you would check out my friends there as well. After the runaway success of Star Wars, of course, talk began about the inevitable next step, a sequel. But as we discussed in the previous episode about George Lucas's 1977 original, nobody expected that movie to be as big of a hit as it was. As a matter of fact, a lot of people didn't expect it to be a hit at all. So George Lucas had retained full creative control over the franchise. And as he was developing the movie that would become The Empire Strikes Back, he wasn't about to give up one iota of that control. This was a perfect opportunity to become independent of the Hollywood system. I decided I was going to finance the film myself, that I was going to make it completely independently. While Lucas maintained his relationship with 20th Century Fox for distribution of The Empire Strikes Back, he self-funded the movie, basically taking out a $30 million plus loan for the budget of The Empire Strikes Back, not only staking his own future on this movie, but the future of his two companies, Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic. But Lucas wasn't just trying to replicate the success of the first Star Wars movie. He wanted to tell the sprawling three-part story that he'd already had mapped out in his head. But the challenge that he found was that telling the middle chapter of a three-part story, a movie that really doesn't have a beginning or an end, was not an easy task. The middle, not much happens. It sort of evolves the story, makes the plot more complicated. The only thing I had really was the revelation that Darth Vader was Luke's father, which is not a lot. Lucas tried developing the story on his own for a while and then turns to sci-fi novelist and screenwriter Lee Brackett for help. After a lot of collaboration, Brackett turned in a version of the screenplay in early 1978, but sadly, she passed away from cancer shortly thereafter. George Lucas continued developing the script until he decided he needed to bring on another collaborator and found one in Lawrence Kasdan. And it's Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett who do share the screenplay credit on this movie. George Lucas has story credit. Lucas already had a relationship with Lawrence Kasdan through his friend Steven Spielberg, and they had all already worked together on the screenplay for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Kasdan had just finished that screenplay when George Lucas asked him to come and consult with him on The Empire Strikes Back. And like Lucas, Kasdan also shared a vision for an exciting middle chapter that would be both challenging and rewarding. I was delighted that it was not going to be a rehash of Star Wars. You launch into the second act in which everything goes to hell. And that's usually 
the best act in a play. Lucas didn't just seek collaboration on the screenplay, however. Given everything that was on his plate, the fact that he was self-financing the film, he was growing Industrial Light and Magic, he was growing Lucasfilm, there were a lot of things to do, and Lucas determined that this was not the time for him to return to the director's chair. To find somebody to helm The Empire Strikes Back, he went to somebody who was on faculty at USC when he was in film school, director Irvin Kirshner. Kirshner had done several movies already in his career, but nothing even approaching the scope and scale of The Empire Strikes Back. And when Lucas made the offer to him, it was the last thing that he was expecting. And he said, Kirsch, I want you to direct the second Star Wars. You hear the quiet? Well, that's what he heard too, because I looked at him and I wonder, are you crazy? So why Irvin Kirshner? Well, according to Lucas, he says it's because he knew everything that a Hollywood director needed to know. He could keep the trains running on time, but he wasn't entrenched in the Hollywood game, which meant that he wasn't going to try to pull the movie and George Lucas into playing ball the way that the studios wanted to. And while Kirshner's influence on The Empire Strikes Back was huge, he made a lot of creative decisions that guided what eventually went on screen. Carrie Fisher has also noted that even though Kirshner was the unquestioned director on set, when George Lucas was there, everybody knew whose baby Star Wars really was. Even if he's not ostensibly conducting the orchestra, he wrote the symphony you know, if he's around, we're all looking at him. Lucas's influence on The Empire Strikes Back can actually be seen almost from the first frame of the film with the title crawl that opens the movie. When Star Wars was originally released in 1977, there was no chapter and there was no title. It just started with the scroll. Now that he had the control to do it his own way, all of that changed with The Empire Strikes Back. This was the first time I was able to put the number of the episode on the film and the actual title where it belonged. When we did a New Hope, the studio wouldn't let me put that on there because they felt it was too confusing for the public. Following the crawl, we visit the ice planet of Hoth, where the Rebel Alliance is dug in after their successful destruction of the Death Star at the end of the last movie. They are hiding out from the Empire, and it's also where we find Luke Skywalker. And in the opening minutes of the movie, he's attacked by an ice creature called a Wampa, which necessitates his rescue later on by his friend Han Solo. Uh, I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. The Wampa attack has become a bit of a Star Wars Rashomon. Different sources say different things. If you look at the Empire Strikes Back page on Wikipedia and also kind of the prevailing wisdom about the opening part of this movie, it says that the Wampa attack was written into the screenplay by George Lucas to explain the fact that Mark Hamill looked a little different after 1977 Star Wars due to a car accident that required some facial surgery. But that crash took place in 1977 before the first Star Wars film was even released. And according to George Lucas in one of the commentaries on the Blu-ray. While everybody knew that Mark Hamill had been in this accident and there were some visible changes to his appearance, that was not the motivating factor for including the Wampa in the screenplay. Mark at the end of New Hope had been in a car accident and I knew that uh, Mark was going to look a little bit different than he did in the first film, but that really wasn't the main emphasis of why we wrote the monster in the beginning. It was just we needed something to kind of keep the film suspenseful at the beginning while the Empire's finding them. While crucial to the first act of the film, fans wouldn't get a really clear look at the Wampa until the 1997 special edition of The Empire Strikes Back. And a big reason for that is that a creature of that size was very difficult to bring to life, especially in the treacherous, icy, and windy conditions of Norway. Not that Des Webb, who played the Wampa, had it easy. 
Des is 7'4". He was trying to walk in snow on two and a half foot stills. With his mask on, he was 11 feet tall. Following Luke's rescue, we get an action sequence that probably would have been the climax of just about any other film, the assault on the rebel base by the Empire, including one of my favorite pieces of hardware in any Star Wars movie, the Imperial Walker, a.k.a. the AT-AT, a.k.a. the AT-AT, depending on whom you ask. These mean machines were brought to life by stop-motion animation, which is a meticulous process of visual effects that required some interesting solutions, according to visual effects guru Dennis Muir. Animator could sort of uh, hide underneath the table, shoot one frame of film, and then to shoot the next frame where the puppet is, there'd be a trap door that he would open up, stand up, be able to reach out and animate the puppet for one frame of film, just move it to the next slight position, then go back under and close the door. While the technology and the man in the director's chair had changed, some things didn't, and that includes the actor's inability to wrap their heads and oftentimes their mouths around the technobabble that often infiltrated the scripts of George Lucas's movies. In one of the movie's commentary tracks, Carrie Fisher shares just how difficult it was to be as authoritative as she wanted to be as Princess Leia. This was the longest speech on the planet Earth. I had no idea what I was talking about. Several ion cannons will fire blasts at the shield of the blah, and then I was in the gobbledygook of George's typewriter. I had no clue as to what I was talking about. One small part of this Imperial assault that really had a big effect on me as a kid is the part where Darth Vader arrives and you see him walking through the rebel base. Up to this point, he'd always been in space. He was on ships, he was in fighters, he was on the Death Star. And I don't know why, but he just seems so much more real when you see him actually inside the rebel base on the planet Hoth. It seemed like this was a guy that wasn't gonna wait for you to come to him in space. He was going to come and get you. And I think that's one of the things that this movie did so well. Darth Vader went from being a glorified henchman to a real evil, menacing character. Adding to that enhanced menace is one of my favorite music cues of all time, which was introduced in this film, John Williams' Imperial March. But the Imperial March isn't just a fan favorite, it's also a favorite of its composer. It's the piece that I, I think I enjoy performing most of all the pieces in, in, the, in the, I guess you could say, canon of tunes created for, for the Star Wars films. It's very befitting of the title that this movie does focus more on the Empire, and there's so much mythology that's built around Darth Vader. It's more than I usually remember, but when you look at this movie versus the last movie, there are so many little things, so many touches or parts of scenes that make you not just fear Darth Vader, but wonder what's going on with this guy. You see these little glimpses of the man that's underneath the armor, and it really builds up not just the menace, but the mythology around this character. You don't want to just know who he is. You want to know how he got this way. What is actually going on underneath that mask? And these are questions that Irvin Kershner and George Lucas were excited for the audience to ask. It was very important in this movie at this point for us to realize that Darth Vader was a human being. After going through that with Kirsch, he came up really with this thing of having him put his helmet on. I can see him with his helmet, and I wonder, really, what the hell's underneath? Is it just an ordinary man, or is it pieces of a man? And that's what 
happens to the audience when they don't see too much. The scene with Darth Vader's egg, for lack of a better word, was also the source of one of the earliest Star Wars parody videos I remember seeing on YouTube back when it launched, appropriately titled, Darth Vader is a Jerk. Comscan has detected an energy field protecting it. We also get our first look at the Emperor in The Empire Strikes Back, but due to the magic of George Lucas, different generations have different memories of this scene. When I was a kid, the Emperor that we saw was a bizarre looking mixture of Marjorie Eaton under a lot of makeup with the voice of actor Clive Revel. What is thy bidding, my master? There is a great disturbance in the Force. But for anybody who's seen the movie after 2004, The Emperor is played by Ian McDiarmid, who played Palpatine in Return of the Jedi and would go on to play him in the prequels and the sequel trilogy. What is thy bidding, my master? There is a great disturbance in the Force. But the special special edition with Ian McDiarmid added also adds a very curious rewrite. In the original version of the movie, The Emperor only name drops Luke Skywalker. We have a new enemy, Luke Skywalker. But the special edition has the Emperor seemingly revealing to Darth Vader that Luke Skywalker is his son. We have a new enemy, the young rebel who destroyed the Death Star. This boy is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. How is that possible? This is an example of a change being done to preserve continuity that I think actually raises more problems than it fixes. Now, I understand why they rewrote that bit of dialogue, or honestly, probably why George Lucas rewrote that bit of dialogue, and it's to fix a plot hole that Darth Vader would think that his kids are dead because he's told that they died along with Padme. But if you go along with this line of thinking, then that raises a very important question, which is that there are really only two possible scenarios in this case. One of them is that Darth Vader has never heard the name Luke Skywalker, which is pretty hard to believe considering this movie is set about three years after A New Hope, and I'm sure that the legend of Luke Skywalker would have spread far enough out into the galaxy for Imperial Intelligence to have picked it up. Darth Vader is like the number two guy in the Empire, and if you ask me, there's no way he doesn't know about Luke Skywalker. The other possibility that's even less believable is that Darth Vader has heard the name Luke Skywalker, but never quite put together that the really Force-sensitive kid who blew up the Death Star, who was from his home planet, who was studying with his old teacher, and who had his last name, could in fact be his son. This makes Darth Vader sound like an idiot, and Darth Vader is not an idiot. It actually works better the old way, when the Emperor just referred to him as the son of Skywalker. It's a very oblique reference. You can understand the fact that he's not going to say your son because Darth Vader is not the same as Anakin Skywalker. It works retroactively. The son of Skywalker must not become a Jedi. The new version just raises so many different questions. And that's not the only problem I have with these changes. The Emperor's look is all wrong. He looks like height of the prequels with the red eyes Palpatine when he should really be a lot closer to how he looks in Return of the Jedi. I'm not a fan of this change that was made. I think it's way more distracting to do it this way than just to leave it the old way. But uh, you know what? I don't have any say in the matter. The Empire pursues Han, Chewie, Leia, and the droids through an asteroid field in a scene that includes another one of my favorite John Williams Star Wars music cues. (laughs) 
And when I think about it, I think Empire is my favorite all-around John Williams Star Wars score. And this has always been one of my favorite scenes. When I was a kid and I had the toy Millennium Falcon, I would always make it do that flip motion that it does where it kind of goes up toward the camera and back down into the hole where they're hiding for the Empire. I just think that was such a great, cool look at the maneuverability of the spaceship and the way that George Lucas and his special effects team were able to free up the kinds of motion in these flight scenes that you haven't seen from other films. Hiding out from the Empire in the asteroid field also allows the movie to stop and take a breath and develop the romance between Han and Leia, which would culminate in the next film, Return of the Jedi. And even though they would have a much more famous kiss later in the movie, Irvin Kershner was very aware that this scene, the one that included their first kiss, would have a very special resonance, particularly amongst the adults in the audience. And of course, what he wants is to kiss her. And a kiss in this film is almost equivalent to intercourse. Not to the children, but to the adults, <laughs> I think. The deleted scenes for this sequence on the Blu-ray also just underscore how hard it is for any actor to take this kind of movie seriously. Explosion! Big explosion! With his friends entangled with the Empire, Luke heads to the planet Dagobah to begin his official training as a Jedi. And while Luke's training had always been part of the story that George Lucas had in his head, he needed to invent a new Jedi Master due to a last-minute rewrite on his previous film. In the original movie, though, it was Obi-Wan Kenobi that was training him, not Yoda. Yoda didn't exist because literally in the third week of shooting, the first film, I rewrote it and killed him. <laughs> Then, when I went to do the second movie, I had killed off the main Jedi teacher. So I had to create a new one. Looking to differentiate Yoda from every other character in the Star Wars universe, Lucas had envisioned some kind of a frog-like creature, but certainly nothing that could be brought to life solely by a human being. And so he went to the one man in Hollywood who had the experience to bring impossible creatures to life. I'd known Jim Henson, and I went to Jim and said, you know, do you want to do this? I really asked Jim to do it first. And he said, well, I'm busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I'm making a movie and all that. And I really can't. But how about, you know, Frank? You know, Frank's the other half of me and everything. And I said, well, that would be fantastic. Frank was Frank Oz, who had been working with Henson for almost two decades by this point and had brought to life Muppets like Miss Piggy, Cookie Monster, and Fozzie Bear. With Frank Oz on board to do the puppetry and the voice of Yoda, the design went to veteran Stuart Freeborn, who decided to model the look of Yoda after a very recognizable face, his own. I looked in the mirror and I thought, well, uh, something perhaps a little bit amusing about my face. So I modeled something of myself. Now I've got to make him look intelligent. I got this photograph of Einstein and put the Einstein wrinkles in all around. While Freeborn had the experience necessary for the fabrication of Yoda, Frank Oz had the experience necessary to bring Yoda to life in a very complicated stage setup that included having to build everything five feet off the ground in order to allow him to walk underneath. <sighs> You will be. You will be. Sorry. Ah, um, no problems. But this setup led to one very important issue. Mark Hamill could not hear his co-star who was buried underneath the ground of the set they were working on. And the solutions they attempted to use for rehearsals posed their own sets of problems. 
If I had an earpiece where I could hear, oh, many years have you ever. And then if you turned your head the wrong way, you'd pick up Radio 1 and it was the Rolling Stones singing Fool to Cry. Eventually, Hamill had to rehearse with Frank Oz wearing an earpiece and then time his responses based on those rehearsals to Oz's movements and his memory of what the lines were. This is a very complicated process and very challenging for both actors. But when George Lucas went to the proper channels in order to get Frank Oz recognized on the awards circuit for his performance as Yoda, he was quickly disappointed. Frank Oz did a brilliant job of acting in this picture. We tried actually to get him a... Academy Award nomination and Screen Actors Guild said puppeteers aren't actors, which I thought was outrageous. This strikes me as very similar to the debate that is still going on about actors in motion capture roles and whether they should be eligible for the Academy Awards. And in my opinion, and I've had this opinion as long as this has been an issue, I think they should. I think that acting is acting. Andy Serkis as Gollum, Toby Kebbell in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, all great acting done by actors who just have to be working on a bit of a different technological plane than a lot of their peers. Yoda's sequences with Luke are crucial to the franchise's main storyline, and yet they are also much slower. You have sequences that are full of philosophy and metaphorical sequences, like when Luke goes into the cave and fights the literal enemy within. Do or do not. There is no try. While he didn't want to cut any of this important character development, George Lucas was also very well aware of the risks posed by including this in a much-anticipated blockbuster sequel like The Empire Strikes Back. In a film like Star Wars, to have maybe 10 minutes of the film be lecturing, a bit of nervousness on everybody's part that this would play and not put people to sleep, it makes the, the middle of this movie relatively soft next to what people expected of the second film in Star Wars. Ultimately, though, Yoda proved to be one of the movies and one of the franchise's major breakout characters and helped to set up both this movie's big twist and the one coming in Return of the Jedi. That boy is our last hope. No, there is another. Lucas wasn't just setting up sequels, though. Knowing that there was a climactic life-and-death lightsaber duel with Darth Vader coming up to end the third act of the movie, he also wanted to sow seeds of doubt in the audience's mind that Luke Skywalker would make it out alive. And when I said, there's another, um, it basically signaled to the audience that I could kill Luke. And I killed Obi-Wan. The third act culminates on Cloud City, where Han, Leia, and the crew meet Han's friend Lando Calrissian, a new character who is played by Billy D. Williams. I think that he's a breath of fresh air for this movie, and I can see why he was included in the film. But as I was doing research for this episode, I found this clip from Gene Siskel's 1980 review of The Empire Strikes Back that cites a motivation for casting Billy D. Williams that I actually never heard before. The film's one new human character is played by Billy D. Williams, the only black man in the movie cast, it seems, in response to the charge that the first Star Wars film was racist. Now, I couldn't find anything backing up this assertion that Billy D. Williams was cast solely to address criticisms of the first Star Wars film for its lack of diversity. However, Siskel is right about one thing. Shortly after Star Wars was released in 1977, actor Raymond St. Jock sent a letter that was printed in the Los Angeles Times that talked about the lack of diversity, not only in Star Wars, but in other sci-fi films like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Logan's Run. This letter sparked a debate that played out in the editorial page of the Los Angeles Times for a few weeks following. 
While this doesn't do anything to prove Siskel's hypothesis, it does prove one thing, which is that the kind of discussions that are still being had today are nothing new, and that these kinds of issues have been talked about not just for Star Wars, but about big pop culture things for decades now. As it turns out, the more things don't change, the more they stay the same. Whatever the motivations may or may not have been, I think that Billy D. Williams is perfectly cast in the role of Lando Calrissian. You look absolutely beautiful. You truly belong here with us among the clouds. Mm, thank you. And a reason why is something that Lucas brings up in the commentary that I hadn't even thought of before, which is that Lando is kind of a mirror image of Han Solo. Lando Clarissian was created as a character who was a foil to Han, who represents what Han was before he met Luke and Leia in episode four. He is sort of making the same mistakes that Han would make if Han hadn't joined the rebellion and become a little bit more compassionate. I do want to point out a couple things, though, real quick. Did you notice in that commentary that George Lucas says both Lando Clarissian and Han Solo? So have we been saying it wrong this whole time? I mean, this guy invented those characters. If that's the way he says it, I guess that's the way that we're all supposed to be saying it. Although I will say with Lando Calrissian, people have been struggling with that name since the movie came out, as this clip from today proves. He's now Lando Carzillian, Carzillian, Calzillian. Calrissian. Sounds like a, a kind of a, a car salesman. I've, I've never... And you really are like that. You're so evil. Two points for the mispronunciation, 12 points for the spoiler. Grade A TV hosting. It is true, though, that Lando does betray Han, Leia, and Chewie to Darth Vader, and that Han Solo is tortured in order to draw Luke away from his training on Dagobah and into a trap on Cloud City. Darth Vader's plan is to freeze Luke Skywalker in Carbonite and bring him to the Emperor, but the machine has to be tested first, and so he decides to test it on Han Solo. And this test run leads to one of the most famous declarations of love ever captured on film. I love you. And this isn't news. I think this is mentioned every time that this scene is covered, but I have to include it contractually. Of course, this was not the way the scene was originally scripted. George had scripted that I love you, and Han Solo said, I love you too. And it kind of uh, seemed to me that we weren't taking advantage of the character that we'd established for Han Solo. I came up with lines. Harrison came up with lines, and after a half hour, we gave up. And I said, let's do one more take. Don't think about it. Shoot. Action. And Harrison pulled back and said, I know. And I said, okay, that's it, lunch. Following the kiss and his freezing, Han is then handed over to a bounty hunter named Boba Fett, another one of Empire Strikes Back's most famous breakout characters. Boba Fett was developed to be in an animated special for television, and I liked him so much that we brought him in as one of the bounty hunters. He got a, a bigger and bigger role as time went on. Uh, originally, that was just written as a bounty hunter. I'd like to just take a moment and applaud George Lucas there for sidestepping the horror that is the Star Wars Holiday Special by describing the introduction of Boba Fett as being made for an animated special on television. That's like calling the Titanic a troublesome Atlantic cruise or calling Transformers Age of Extinction a movie about robots. That is some grade A downplaying there, Baron Papanoida. Well done. Vader and Luke square off in a masterfully shot, masterfully edited, masterfully scored lightsaber duel that spans the length and breadth of Cloud City and ends with Luke Skywalker hanging perilously over a chasm staring death right in the face. But all of that is nothing compared to one of the most famous and parodied scenes in movie history. He told me you killed him. 
No. I am your father. Even in a pre-internet era, nobody involved with the film wanted to risk this spoiler getting out, which meant that a very select few even knew what was going to happen in the movie. Mark Hamill wasn't even told until shortly before the scene was shot. There was only about three or four of us that actually knew uh, what that that existed. I met with Mark and said, you know that Darth Vader's your father. What? They had taken me aside and said, this is what he's really going to say. And Darth Vader will be saying stuff that doesn't count. Forget it. Use your own rhythm compared to what he's doing. He said, you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. Now, this is a dark, dark corner to go to in general, much less to end the movie on. And George Lucas was very well aware that a large portion of his fan base were kids. And so he actually consulted a child psychologist to make sure that he was not going to traumatize an entire generation of children with the ending of The Empire Strikes Back. So I brought in several psychologists to go over whether this would have an effect on anybody. And ultimately the conclusion was that kids that can handle it will handle it. Kids that can't handle it will simply think it's a lie. But it wasn't just kids who might have questioned Darth Vader's real intentions. The man who famously spoke the words themselves didn't even believe what he was saying. When I first saw the dialogue that said, Luke, I am your father, I said to myself, he's lying. I wonder how they're going to play that lie out. For David Prowse, the man inside the Darth Vader costume, the reveal remained a secret until he was sitting in his seat watching the finished film. Or so he says. It surprised me, actually, because I didn't know anything about it until I was sat in the cinema last Saturday. And, I, and that was the first I knew of it. And yeah. what did you do? <laughs> Practically collapsed in the seat. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. But it was such a, such a sensational twist, but it was really something which had been mooted around for a long time, and I thought they'd forgotten all about it. That last part of the interview is interesting, though, because it makes it sound like someone might have told David Prowse years earlier that the plan was for Darth Vader to be Luke's father, and then he thought that they just forgot about it. And it would also explain why, in 1978, at a promotional appearance in Berkeley, Prowse told a group of fans that Darth Vader was going to be revealed as Luke Skywalker's father during an intense lightsaber fight. He even went so far as to say, quote, Father can't kill son, son can't kill father, so they live again to star in Star Wars 4. That quote was actually printed in the newspaper, but luckily this was 1978. There was no internet, so it was kind of forgotten on the back pages until it was dug up by a writer for a site called Retroist.com. But if that had happened today, that would have set off a firestorm of internet controversy. It would have swept around the internet. One of the biggest reveals of all time would have been totally blown, and it may have even forced George Lucas to change the entire direction of the trilogy. Luckily, the internet wasn't around, and it got thrown out with that day's sports score and largely forgotten. So congratulations, David Prowse. You dodged a bullet. But still, that does beg the question. Did somebody tell David Prowse back in 1977 or 1978 what was going to happen? Because even if he'd forgotten or even if he thought, oh, well, that was a great idea or if he got the script for Empire and the reveal wasn't in there and he said, oh, I guess they decided not to do that. It does seem like somebody sometimes, somewhere told him what was going to happen. Who was it? These are the kind of unsolved mysteries we need to get to the bottom of.
The ending of Empire with Han kidnapped, Luke questioning everything he knows, Leia possibly having lost the man she just realized that she loves, is hopeful in a dark way, but unquestionably bleak. It was yet another risk that could have tanked George Lucas's finances and his career. And like the serials that he was so fond of that he modeled the original Star Wars off of, it was a cliffhanger ending. The question was, would audiences stay on board to see the end? The Empire Strikes Back was released on May 21st, 1980 to a somewhat mixed critical response. Some critics like Gene Siskel admired it as much or more than the original film. The sequel is just as entertaining as the original Star Wars, the most popular movie of all time. Others dismissed it as just another puff piece of a movie, useful as a distraction, but not much else, much as they did for the first movie. The movie is pure escapism, no big social message. But these days, with the way the world is, there is a lot to escape from. But a lot of other people reacted negatively, objecting to the change of tone, the cliffhanger ending, and the general dreariness compared with the crowd-pleasing thrills of the first movie. And according to sound designer Ben Burt, this is part of the legacy of The Empire Strikes Back that is often overlooked. It's funny, you know, people always say that now they look comment about, you know, Empire being the favorite. Yet at the time, it was not considered that. You know, the first film came out, New Hope, and it was extremely well-received, surprised everyone. Then you do a sequel, The Empire Strikes Back, and people's expectations now are very high. And when it came out, there was a lot of reaction of disappointment. There wasn't this uh, judgment that it was the best of the three films or anything of that sort. People spoke less of it. There was kind of, you know, well, it's, it's okay, I guess. And, you know, it wasn't quite what I was hoping for. It was sort of the attitude. The Empire Strikes Back was by no means a financial failure. It grossed about two-thirds of what the original Star Wars did, but that was a phenomenal number to start from. However, after Return of the Jedi was released, it was the lowest-grossing domestic grosser of the original trilogy. But by the time the original trilogy were released as special editions in 1997, The Empire Strikes Back easily outgrossed Return of the Jedi. It now stands as the 13th highest-grossing film of all time, adjusted for inflation, of course, and... If you could find anything close to a consensus among Star Wars fans, which is very difficult to do, it might be that The Empire Strikes Back is still the best Star Wars movie. Maybe. Regardless of its legacy, The Empire Strikes Back is the movie that allowed George Lucas the freedom to build Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic into the independent entities that he wanted them to be. There would be one more Star Wars adventure that came out in 1983, Return of the Jedi, before the franchise went dark for 16 years until the prequels were released starting in 1999. And The Empire Strikes Back, whether back in the 80s or in the 90s or today, still stands as one of the most beloved, one of the most memorable, and one of the most well-known movies ever made. It's always fun to go over the legacy of The Empire Strikes Back, and particularly when you talk about it with Star Wars fans, and so I decided to contact two of the biggest Star Wars fans that I know. One of them is a faction mate with me on The Dungeon and is one of our all-star Star Wars players, Molly Damon. The other is the former Star Wars movie trivia schmodown champ, and dare I say probably future Star Wars movie trivia schmodown champ, Alex Damon. They run the channel Star Wars Explained on YouTube, and we will talk to both of them right after this word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain 
one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway. And it's something that can keep me going throughout the day. They also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. That one is my favorite. The combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what I go for, but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose. No matter what your situation is, it's a great snack on the go, and they are gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fat, sugar, alcohols, or artificial colors. And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. Mental health is a very important thing, and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now, this is not a crisis line. This is not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas, and BetterHelp is a resource that is available worldwide. Plus, you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With BetterHelp, you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to, and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments. You don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy. It's all done online. BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you, which means that you can change counselors anytime you want for free, and it's more affordable than traditional therapy, and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today, and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com movies. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show. All my movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to betterhelp.com movies. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show.
as if talking about the Empire Strikes Back wasn't fun enough, I have very lucky to be joining me today what I think are two of the premier Star Wars fans in the world. You know both of them from Star Wars Explained on YouTube, and also particularly if you're a Schmodown fan from a certain point of view, which is one of the best breakdowns of everything Schmodown around, Alex Damon and Molly Damon. Uh, thank you so much to not only Star Wars competitors, but Star Wars fans. Um, I, when I was talking, when I said that I was going to do Empire Strikes Back, the two of you were the first people that, that jumped to mind. So I'm very grateful for you to be on the show today. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. One thing that I mentioned as I was setting this up before is that, and, and you know, you're, you're maybe a little plugged in uh, than I am, but I said that it, it, you were go- the closest thing that you were going to get to a consensus in the Star Wars fan, fan group, the fandom, is that Empire Strikes Back might be the best of the, all of the movies. Do you think that that's changed since the, the Force Awakens and the newer films have come out? Or, do, you know, where do you guys put it? Is it, is, it a, is it at least in the top group for you? Yes, it's not my, it's not my top choice. But I do think that you're right. There's, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Star Wars fan who's just going to be like, oh, Empire's garbage, and it's at the <laughs> bottom of my list. I'm sure it's out there, uh, but... I've never heard anyone put Empire near the bottom of their rankings. Yeah, it's definitely in my top couple of movies. My rankings are always kind of changing, but I don't know. I mean, it might also be a generational thing. Like, younger kids who are growing up now with the sequel trilogy, they might not like it as much as we do. Maybe I should revise my statement and say the closest thing that you'll get to a consensus from Star Wars fans is that it's one of the best Star Wars movies. Maybe not the best Star Wars movie. But but Molly, you mentioned, you know, generational and and and, and perhaps this being a generational thing. That's one of the unique things about Star Wars because it's not just about different generations growing up with different Star Wars movies. It's about different generations growing up with different versions of the same Star Wars movies. And I mentioned, uh, and you know, I, I, don't, I don't quite know the gap between us, but there's an entire group of people that have seen The Empire Strikes Back and have only seen Ian McDiarmid as the, peer, as the Emperor. And they have no idea that, you know, I grew up in this alternate reality where there was another Emperor. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you had the, the voice of Clive Revel and everything, and that was changed back in the early 2000s. Was that, was that the version of the movie that you guys grew up with, or, or is it, has it always been E. McDermott? No, I first saw... So we were both born in 1987. So I grew up with, like, the, the VHS box set. Uh, eventually, <laughs> my parents got that for me. I, you, you were talking about this with Ken on your A New Hope episode. Yep. That's the one. There they go. Where yep. You guys were talking about first watching it on USA, and uh, my first watch for A New Hope was from TBS. Same thing. My parents had it taped, and they let me kind of watch that every day for a summer until they were finally like, "I guess we'll get the tapes." And yeah, there's two other movies. Here you go. Like <laughs> they just kind of let me wear myself out on A New Hope for a while. But yeah, I I saw the Clive Rebel chimpanzee eyes Emperor mm-hmm. first. Very, very scary, I think. <laughs> very off-putting. And, and, it's, and it's, it's also kind of weird sometimes to talk about it with people because, you know, I, do you have a lot of interaction? Because it's something that I'm learning. I had a lot of interaction with people at Screen Junkies, but since I launched my own thing, I'm learning just how much more interaction you have day-to-day with people. Is it tough sometimes to talk about movies when, the, you know, there's people 
who, you know, you guys are a few years younger than me. I'm sure there's a lot of people that watch the channel that are a few years younger than you. Like, are, are there some reference points that are lost because you're like, oh yeah, I remember in the movie and they're like, what? No, what are you talking about? That, you know, that's always been there. That didn't happen. Like, it, it's kind of weird to make that adjustment. I don't feel like we run into that a whole lot, actually. I don't know. The the changes that they made were when the special editions came out in, what, 97? Mm -hmm. Maybe people just don't dwell on that as much as uh, some of the fans that saw it, like saw the originals in the theater, because, yeah, we don't really hear a ton about like everything that they changed. Although when they went on Disney Plus and McClunky was right. added, there was like a whole big thing. Well, I was going to say for <laughs> Empire, I feel like the special edition changes just weren't as uh, drastic as they were for A New Hope or Return of the Jedi. Empire yeah. is like just little kind of Cloud City is a little more open. Every time I watch it, I feel bad for the rotoscoper who had to like paint out Chewbacca's fur as he runs by a window. I can't think of, I guess, yeah, Ian McDermott is the biggest change. And yeah, I don't even recall if that was in the special edition or, or if it was I, later. I think that was made in, uh, for what I was reading, because it all blurs together for me too. They said it was made in 2004 after the prequels had started coming out. So yeah. it was, mm -hmm. uh, you, even the special edition in 97 still had the old Emperor in it. Right, and it was, it, it, they changed that when they added Hayden into Return of the Jedi. That was, yeah, yeah they've, had, they've done so many like changes to these movies that it's like, now when did they put that rock in front of R2-D2? <laughs> When did they change the crate dragon roar again? Like, <laughs> well, I think it says a lot, though, because you mentioned, and I remember it even from going to see it back in 97, you know, the Star, Star Wars, the 77 one, had so many additions to it. And then Jedi, you'd change the end of the end song, and you'd, you'd change this. You had this whole new number in Jabba's Palace, all these big things. But, like, Empire is, like, cosmetic changes. You throw in a couple. I think that, like, the, maybe the biggest change, uh, at least in 97, was you throw, have some extra shots of the Wampa because they couldn't figure out how mm -hmm. to do it back then. Um, but I think that might speak to this movie and maybe even George Lucas's feelings about this movie is that like he had these like big sequences that he wanted to change and, and Jedi and, and A New Hope, and yet Empire Strikes Back is mostly just these like, oh, I want a window here, or I want to add a shot of the Falcon yeah. there. It's not these like <laughs> big changes. I think that, that probably speaks a lot to how this movie turned out, maybe even in his eyes. Yeah. I think you're right. That's probably the one that he just feels like he executed his vision on the first time even though he wasn't directing it but you know still heavily involved yeah when i bring people on one thing that i always like to talk about is you know when you ex when you watch a movie and i think when you watch a great movie sure you know the beach you know the story but there are moments that get you so swept up it's almost like watching it the first time is there a particular moment or a particular scene in empire you know because i'm sure you've both probably seen the movie dozens of times if not more is there a moment that still hits you just as hard every time uh the the hundredth time as it did the first time i crank up the volume every time they do the asteroid chase and i still oh, think yeah. like the effects in there hold up and just because yeah we're often watching them to study so it's like a big marathon session and so you watch a new hope and then you watch empire and just the jump in effects mm -hmm. and the way the ships move uh, I, I love that music. I love that entire sequence. And I, I think it holds up to modern day movie making still. I think mine is probably everything with Yoda in it. We're watching this recently for, yeah, like the hundredth time or whatever. And I was just like, 
this is funny. Like Yoda is funny in this, and I thought you were gonna say like luminous beings are we, but no, you mean when he's hitting R two when with he the stick, hits yeah. R two with the stick. That's just like that's pure humor, and it make, it makes me giggle every time. And I I love his theme music too. It's it's really good. Oh, I was actually talking about the score earlier, and I, I don't even know if I realized it at any particular point, but as I was, I was revisiting the movie and the scenes for this one, I do think that the score overall for this film, and there have been a lot of great ones, is my favorite John Williams score for any individual Star Wars movie because you have so many, you have the Imperial March, you've got the, the, the music when they're going through the asteroid field, you have Yoda's theme, you know, Han and Leia, that, that love theme. Like there's so many just iconic pieces of Star Wars music that make their debut in this movie. Yeah. I think it, I would rank this one as my favorite music. I think I would too. Like I said, I, I turn the volume all the way up for the asteroid chase. I love it so much. <laughs> and and it gets stuck in your head, and then for the rest of the day, you're like, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> so one scene that I've always... It's a scene that I didn't really like when I was a kid that much, but I've kind of grown to like. I think it's kind of polarizing because some people think that's eh, too on the nose. The cave scene, Luke's trials, he goes down into the cave, Darth Vader's in the cave. When I was a kid, I thought it was scary because, well, the first time I saw it, I thought it was actually Darth Vader down there. It scared the piss out of me. But knowing <laughs> then after that it's not Darth Vader, I think when I was a kid, maybe I didn't quite appreciate what it was going for. Um, this is the first time on film that we've seen, you know, Jedi training. We haven't really seen a lot. Honestly, this is the most extensive look in the movies. I know in other media we've gotten a lot that we get at like what it takes to be a Jedi. Um, is that you know is that a scene that you've always kind of been like, oh, that's interesting? Or some people are like, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. He, he was going to be Darth Vader. It's one I definitely appreciate more now. I because I remember growing up having you know the original trilogy, and my dad was of course like, yeah, Empire is my favorite, and I was like, why as a mm. as a ten year old like. I can't imagine loving Empire the most. I mean, I like the Battle of Hoth. I like the asteroid chase. But to me, the rest of it was kind of boring and slow. Um, so, uh, like, that's one where the older you get, and you actually see what they're saying. Like, oh, yeah, that's good. And I, I remember my dad kind of explaining stuff that Yoda said or explaining uh, the scene in the cave. And, like, some of that stuff still stuck with me. Um, so it it wasn't like my favorite scene growing up, but I like it now. This this is probably the movie that I and my friends, whenever we would have it on, we would fast forward through certain parts of it the most. We would just skip around and watch like the good parts. Um, yeah, I, I can remember skipping around a lot while watching this movie in particular, just because I was like, I don't care about Hanalea. <laughs> Oh, wow. I thought you meant like maybe the Yoda part skipping through. Because when I was a kid, they bored. I have to be honest. They bored me a little bit. I got a <laughs> yeah. little bored during the Yoda part. I'm more so, I guess, just like they're bickering. And I was like, uh, yeah, we get it. Like, they're going to end up together whatever. You want me to stay because of the way you feel about me? Yes. You're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. No. That's not it. Come on. The Empire Strikes Back was largely reevaluated by a lot of people. Uh, when it came out, there were some people that loved it. There were some people that just said, no, oh, it's too different. It's too dour. It's not the same. It's an anticlimax. It's a cliffhanger. Um, it was a very mixed reaction. I, I, 
I, I'm going out on a limb. I almost dare not utter it. But do you think it's possible that other movies, namely a movie like The Last Jedi, could go through the same process over time where uh, it comes out, it's not what people expect, it's very polarizing, and then over time, people's opinions kind of change as they revisit it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've actually talked to people who said like they didn't like it in the first viewing and then didn't watch it again for a while because I mean, they weren't like, you know, diehard Star Wars fans. And then when they revisited it, they were like, oh, that was a lot different than I remembered it. And I like have a new appreciation. But for the most part, I mean, this is just something that keeps happening <laughs> with Star Wars is that a movie comes out and it's not what some people wanted it to be. And so they're very loud about it. I mean, that's what happened with the prequels. And then the farther you get away, the more distance you get from those kind of like look back on everything more fondly. So as someone who did not love The Last Jedi, uh, I found it to be polarizing within myself. I'm I still, I think, appreciate it now more than I did when I first saw it. Yeah, I think every it's another one where every time I watch it, I appreciate more about it and like specifically just like different parts of it. Um, but yeah, it's like you said, the prequels, I think a few years down the road, people will <laughs> sing the praises of, of The Last Jedi similarly to Empire, maybe not quite as much, but I think it's going to age well. I think that's something that does, like, we ran up against this when we did the trailer, the honest trailers for the prequels. I wasn't there for when we did episode one at Screen Junkies, but I was there when we did episode two and episode three. And it was honestly something that we weren't prepared for, which was that we, the, all, the, those of us making the trailers, had grown up when Star Wars was three movies. It was these three movies. This was Star Wars. And there was, like, books and games and stuff. But, like, movie-wise, this was Star Wars. And then the prequels came out. And, like, for us, the consensus was, ugh, oh, the prequels <laughs> are terrible. And then we put out the honest trailers, and we realized that there was an entire, the entire generation below us, not the entire generation, but a lot of them were like, what are you talking about? The prequels are great. You guys are, you guys are stuck up. You need to relax. Well, you know, what, what's your problem? And you realize that Star Wars is different from generation to generation. Is it, I, you know, I, I struggle a little bit sometimes when I'm thinking about a Star Wars movie. Like is, it, like, is it disappointing or is it disappointing to me because I come from a base that's completely different from somebody that's 10 or 15 years younger than me? I mean, I think that may be why there's so much debate within the community because everybody's coming at it from such a different place. Yeah, it, it's so universally accepted and loved. And I think people can relate to Star Wars on so many different levels and different ways that they're all going to appreciate different things about different movies and different stories. I mean, I, if I'm being completely honest with myself, I'm like, I think that a handful, well, I like all the Star Wars movies to varying degrees, but I would say I like even my least favorite one. Um, there's probably only a couple that are truly great. And I, I just really buy into the universe as a whole. I, I just give everything a chance because occasionally I'll find something that I'm like, I love this to death. And like, this is just now a top tier Star Wars thing for me, whether it's a book or a video game. It has a lot to do, I think, with just whatever you grew up with when you were in those really, you know, malleable age group, uh, you hold on to those movies and anything that is like new or different 
it's kind of like very foreign to you. It's it's weird because my nephew uh, grew up watching the Clone Wars and he was obsessed with it. Still probably is, although he's grown out of it a little bit, but he knew all the clones names, uh, you know, but when you talked about Luke and Vader, he was like, who? What? <laughs> and it's like, he didn't even really care about the Star Wars movies. He just loved the Clone Wars. I remember we showed him uh, season two, episode one of Star Wars Rebels and Vader's in it. And he was like, this is cool, but where's Anakin? Yeah. And I was like, uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't know how to answer that's that something you would hear uh someone of our generation say generally like where's anakin wait, wait, <laughs> no, why, uh, but i mean that's that's i think that's part of almost the the growing process you know you could say that we're i think we're probably the three of us at the the tail end of what you could call generation one of star wars fans um you know the ones like i was born in 83 so i was born the year that jedi came out but you know we we grew up in in the age before the prequels i think the prequels would probably be generation two and then i think the sequel trilogy that's probably generation three you know and there's about 15 years between each um it, it's it's almost like you know the movies are growing up with us or like like you almost i almost have to learn lessons about to, about growing up myself uh, and and almost like these messages that Star Wars is trying to tell you about, you know, let let go of the past and you know, uh, open you know, free opening your mind and stuff like that because it is it's so easy to get entrenched in your idea of like this is what Star Wars is and you know you don't want to be that inflexible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, to talk about Rebels again. That was something that when it was coming out, I didn't give it a chance at first. And I was like, what is that? Like I said, the literal, oh, this is what Disney Star Wars looks like. And then I gave it a chance and I was like, okay, I kind of love this. So, <laughs> so you went in, we went into it like, okay, this is a kid's show. It's right. made for kids, whatever. Uh, and then it just gets better and better and better. Like, cause people like the kids watching it are growing up with the characters on screen. It's I think that you just have to go in watching a new Star Wars movie or project, not with the expectation that it's going to make you feel like A New Hope did or whatever your first movie was, but just like, hey, I might like this. This might be a good story with a new perspective. And yeah, just don't be so inflexible that you can't accept something new or at the very least acknowledge that it means something to someone else. There's a, I remember a quote not to invoke the other franchise's name, but William Shatner was talking about Star Trek three, the search. I like Star Trek. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know some people, some people, you know, like it's like peanut butter and jelly. No, you want those two to go together. It's like oil and water. (laughs) They don't want them to mix. Uh, But I remember William Shatner was talking about Star Trek three, the search for Spock. And he said, they were never really worried about spoiling the ending because he said that if they did the movie and then they turned to the end of the, they turned to the screen at the end and said, Oh, uh, we couldn't find him. Uh, they, I remember the quote he says, he said, they throw rocks at the screen. Um, and I always thought that that was funny. And yet this movie, you get to the end, Darth Vader's made this big revelation. So it's, you know, Luke is questioning Ben now. He doesn't know what to think. Han's kidnapped. He might be dead. We don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very bleak time. The, the, the rebellion is on the run. And then the movie just ends. And that could be, a throw rocks at the screen kind of ending. Um, people went along with it, I think, largely because Je- uh, Return of the Jedi was 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 pretty well received. Do do you see? Because I've been trying to think of another franchise that you know, Matrix kind of did it, but there's a movie coming out later that year. 
do you see a franchise as big as Star Wars in this day and age doing something that's similar where you end the movie, all of your characters are in a bad place, nothing is resolved really. Like even The Last Jedi, I don't think really did that. I think they closed the loop a little bit more than that. Do you see another Star Wars movie or anything that big doing something like that again? It, it's so risky. I was about to say Infinity War, but we knew Endgame was coming a year later. So it's like, yeah, it, it. I'm trying to think of something that a movie that ends where you're like, is there even going to be a third or like what? <laughs> <laughs> well, because there's no there's no telling like, you know, even me growing up when I got to the end of Empire all I had to do was just grab Jedi and put it in the VCR and, and play. Like, the idea, I mean, I'm just trying to think of, like, go back to 1980 if I'm a Star Wars fan, and the movie ends, and I don't know when the next one's coming out. I don't know, like, who's if it, who's going to come back? Like, what's going to happen? Like, this this complete open-endedness of just being like, uh, what? It's, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing to think about. Yeah, Lando's wearing Han's clothes, so <laughs> is Han ever going to come back? What What's happening? <laughs> That's, that's I had never really considered that because I was the same way. It's just, yeah, Empire done. Okay, let's see how this wraps up. I know that it's a full trilogy. And I think that I don't, I wonder when spoilers became a thing that we all worried about. Because I'm pretty sure my dad was like, yeah, that's Darth Vader. It's Luke's father. And just like <laughs> said that. And I was like, oh, cool. Interesting. What I mean that is that's the other thing is I, I was thinking about this the same the same way. I grew up in a time. I mean, I don't remember exactly when I saw Empire. I was pretty young. But I grew up at a time, like you're saying, the fact that Darth Vader was Luke's father was common knowledge. <laughs> it was just in pop culture. It was just in, the, you know, people made jokes about it. I'm sure I probably saw it parodied before I even saw Empire Strikes <laughs> Back. And it's also hard for me to, to, to think about, like, that is a seismic thing. And also, if you're a fan in 1980, they drop that on you and then just scoot out the door 10 minutes later. I, I've never really thought about that, how how difficult that must have been to just sit with that for three years. <laughs> it's, I it's can't think of, of any, any other story that's done that in a, in a film anyway. Not, yeah, not anything that doesn't have a, the next movie that people already or didn't already know about. Yeah, where like Spider-Man turns to dust and you're like, well, we already know Spider-Man 3 is on the way. So <laughs> like, I, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, or even like, you know, Last Jedi, no matter how it ends, you know, like, Rise of Skywalker, you don't know the name of it, it's got a release date. You mm -hmm. know that it's coming out in two years, so, okay, whatever, I'll wait two years. Say, yeah, in game Infinity War, okay, well, I know when, exactly when the next movie's coming out, and I know what the three movies between it are. Here, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of, um, I've, I've talked about Lost, and how, as a fan of Lost, I got frustrated with the show sometimes, and, you know, I've singled out particular episodes, and I'll have people reach out and say, like, what are you talking about? Like, I love that episode. Why, like, why, why was it so frustrating? And, and I had asked him, I was like, did you watch it on TV? Or did you watch it, like, streaming? And they're like, oh, no, I binged it. I'm like, okay. Watching a show like Lost week to week is a vastly different experience than watching it all in a row when you can just go from episode to episode to episode. And I even think talking about how being a Star Wars fan is different, we even don't relate to it in the same way as somebody who, who had to wait three years between movies. What this made me think of uh, was when I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer on TV, like as it was airing. Oh yeah, that's good. The end of season five, Buffy dies, and the the end of the season, the last shot is her tombstone, and like that's it. And, and I like, think it was up in the air whether or not the show was coming back. Yeah, <laughs> and then I remember like later that summer, I think I was 
riding somewhere and I saw a, bil a billboard and it just said Buffy lives and it like <laughs> blew my mind. <laughs> but yeah, that's what it made me think of. So when you think about the Empire Strikes Back and just where it stands in the Star Wars canon, what its legacy is, you know, what do you think of? Is it is it the the fact that it drove the plot? Is it the the craftsmanship, the art behind it? Like, you know, what where does it really stand in your eyes in, in context of the whole story? I think it's important because it didn't they they actively set out to not do the same thing again. That they were like, okay, Star Wars can be more than just what it was in A New Hope. And we can have like these deeper talks and explorations on the force and, you know, by proxy humanity and who we are. Um, and it doesn't have to be all happy all the time. It can, <laughs> it can have some bummer moments. So I think that that's probably what I think about when it, what it did for the rest of the universe is that it's like, yeah, we can have a great variety of kinds of stories. And now it's like, that's just snowballed into all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, Empire is all about growth um, as people, like, mentally and uh, relationships, things like that. Since there's no Death Star, you know, there's not really a big bad other than yourself, like your, your own mind. I think that's a great point, too, is that so we do like a big canon timeline video every year and it's getting to be almost an hour long but i'm like it's not focused so much on characters it's focused on you know what were the big moments that affected the whole galaxy and i'm like i always kind of struggle to write about empire because it's all about the characters and it isn't about yeah a death star and a galactic threat it's about what's going to happen to this little select group of people uh so i think that's really interesting Last question, because we have a lot of crossover between this show and the Schmodown. You're both elite Star Wars competitors. Uh, Molly, we're lucky enough to be on the same faction. Alex, you're with some other folks, but that's okay. I don't hold it against you. Um, <laughs> but being in that, doing the trivia part of Star Wars, and also, I guess, even to an extent, doing Star Wars Explained, there's an element of business or practice or whatever else uh, that you has to be involved in watching the movies. Are there different parts of your brain where you kind of, you don't, it doesn't lose its freshness, you don't lose your love for it because you're like, well, okay, I'm watching the movie now for this. I'm doing it to memorize the planets and everything, or I'm doing it for this timeline thing, and then there's sort of another mode where it's like, now I'm just going to watch it for fun. Definitely, yes. <laughs> there's, yeah, I mean, it's hard to enjoy a movie that you already know that you love, sitting there like, that's a quote. Pausing it every mm, two seconds. Yeah, that's also rewinding a quote. It. <laughs> yeah, I should write that down. <laughs> oh, they said a number. Got to write that down. Yeah. <laughs> so for people that uh, don't know, um, you both have a lot of awesome stuff on YouTube. Star Wars Explained, and then also A Certain Point of View, which is very closely tied into the Schmodown. Um, if, if there's anybody that wants to check it out and doesn't know about it, uh, just if you could just give like a brief rundown of what you guys do, because I, I, I really enjoy watching it, and I think it's some really cool stuff. So Star Wars Explained is all about trying to keep up with everything that's coming out. So we cover all of the movies, of course, and then the TV shows, both live action and animated, video games, books, the comics. If it's new Star Wars content, we try to experience it, read it, play it, whatever. And uh, then 
talk about whatever interests us from it. So there's reviews, there are just speculation videos and talks about themes and whatnot. Yeah, and we, we really try to not make content that's like, here's this and why I loved it and here's this why or why I hated it. Because like when we started the channel, it was like, okay, we want everyone to feel included. If we didn't like a movie but someone else did or if we didn't like a character and someone else did, we're still going to talk about them or that character knowing that someone out there loves them. So Yeah, we never want someone to walk away from one of our videos being like, well, I, I love that Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. So why did they trash him? Yeah. <laughs> Which we never would. <laughs> and then Molly, I know you do a certain point of view also quite a bit. Yeah, um, I'm on a certain point of view and we cover all things Schmodown. We do reactions, play alongs for the matches and have our uh, regular weekly show every Sunday night uh, where we just cover what happened during the week. Awesome. Well, all things Schmodown, all things Star Wars. Uh, the, the Damons are a one-stop shop. Uh, Alex, Molly, thank you so much for joining me. Check out Star Wars Explained. Check out A Certain Point of View. And, uh, and thanks so much. Uh, this is a great time. Thank you. Thanks. Going to go watch Empire now. <laughs> I'd like to thank the Damons for coming on the show. As I mentioned, you can find them on YouTube, Star Wars Explained. Always great to have friends on to talk about a great movie. Before we go, I'd like to run down the special features that are on the Blu-ray edition of every movie that I have. The version of Empire Strikes Back that I own is actually from this collection behind me, which is ironically called Star Wars The Complete Saga, which very shortly after it was released uh, would not be The Complete Saga. There were three more episodes added and some spinoff movies, so that's already kind of an anachronism, but Star Wars is an ever-shifting mess of things that have been changed and retconned. Even the versions of the movies, the original trilogy movies that are on this Blu-ray, have been changed by what what you watch on streaming, uh, you never know what version you're going to get. There are a couple of commentary tracks on this version. One of them is made of archival interviews with various cast and crew members. The one that I listened to and that I pulled a lot of material from is very interesting. It's done by George Lucas, Irvin Kirshner, Ben Burt, Dennis Murin, and Carrie Fisher. They're not all in the room together, but it is specific to what you're watching and adds a lot of insight to the movie. You also get some behind-the-scenes peeks at different parts of the film, including Hoth, Cloud City, the Imperial Fleet, and Dagobah, and a look at George Lucas in the editing room giving his personal philosophy on the process of editing. Making a film is like buying lumber or cutting down trees and making, making wood out of it, where editing is like actually constructing a house. And so we've had to shoot little animated storyboards take the storyboards and animate them very quickly and call them animatics. There are also several deleted scenes and it's always interesting to see what was left out of these movies because it's almost like an alternate history. For example, there's one scene where it's revealed that Wampas are actually being kept in the rebel base and C-3PO rips the warning label off one of the doors. The Wampa then grabs an Imperial Guard who opens the door. It's kind of a comedic beat, and I almost wish that they'd kept it in the movie. It would have been a big laugh early in the film. I wonder if it's because the Wampa effects weren't very convincing. You also get a little more flirtation between Leia and Luke, and you almost get an actual kiss between the two. I don't know why in the hell they even shot this if George Lucas knew what was going on, but they sure did. You also get an extended version of Han and Leia's first kiss and an interaction between Luke and Leia on the Millennium Falcon where Leia would have become the first canon character to refer to Boba Fett by name. He's in hibernation. 
Lando's fixed it so that we can find Boba Fett's ship. Boba Fett? What was the bounty hunter? There's also kind of an unrelated featurette with George Lucas meeting with, I believe, some writers for the Clone Wars series where he's talking about what the Force is. And there's a certain part where he's describing the Force and he just goes into the Yoda speech from Episode 1. And I'm sitting there wondering, like, is this on purpose? Like, did he know what he was doing? You start to become angry, especially if you're losing it. And that anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. A couple of other docs on one of the bonus discs also covers the special effects for Empire Strikes Back in a special that was produced back in 1980 when the movie actually came out and a conversation with the creative forces behind the Empire Strikes Back that was produced in conjunction with the movie's 30th anniversary. It was one of the great adventures of my life and also one of the most difficult and that wraps up our look at The Empire Strikes Back. I know it was pretty extensive, but it's a pretty popular movie, and it was a lot of fun digging deep into the archives with this. Thanks again to Alex and Molly Damon for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another movie. We're heading into the summer months, June, July, and August. I have a lot of fun stuff prepped for you, and I can't wait for you to see the movies that we have. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll be back with another movie next week, but until then, it's time to go back on the show. See you next time. 